0: is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. Amen. As you grab your seat, grab your Bible, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Good morning. How are we? Good? All right. It's good to be with you this morning. And uh, before we jump into 1 John chapter 4, let me welcome you. If this is your first time, we're glad you're here. We do not believe that uh, anyone finds their way here by accident. And so even if it's just for today, my prayer is that you find this to be home for this Sunday. I pray that our people make you feel at home. And I pray that uh, you feel at home because you are one with the Spirit. And um, you'll hear a little bit more about that in 1 John chapter 4. If you are visiting with us, do us a favor. In your bulletin, there is a small portion in the bottom right hand corner that is our guest card. Do us a favor. Fill out as much or as little of that as you'd like. There's a place where you could ask questions about our church, get more information. Here's what you do with it you tear it out, and on your way out today, drop it in the brown wooden box that's at the back of this room. That's our offering box. As a church, as a body of believers, we support this ministry and give unto the Lord by giving our tithes and offerings into that box. The only thing we ask from you this morning is that you make that card you're offering to us today, all right? Well, uh, I'll give you a couple of announcements before we go. Let's jump right in. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll be today. We've been, uh, we've been out of 1 John for a little while, took a break over the holidays, but we are back in full swing we're going to pick up and finish these last couple of chapters here in the next couple of weeks. There are a couple of ways to approach today's passage. There's a couple of ways to preach today's passage. Uh, one approach would be to take a focus that will, in the end, just just in a broad stroke, will really have this attitude of excluding some folks. There's another approach. There's another focus that we could take that would instead have the attitude or the uh, kind of the underlying effect of not excluding folks, but including folks. Uh, the first, by default, most always has an attitude or this spirit that seeks really to, to create some divisions or to separate. The second will most likely have an attitude or a spirit that's carried with it that is more, uh, well, let's just say humble. Now I'm not completely against the first, and there are some Sundays when I might be led to uh, to preach with the approach of the first. In fact, that that sermon, that first approach to a sermon, was well underway when I when I I, I hope by the Holy Spirit was directed into a different path. Um, that sermon that was in route to the first approach uh, included. As I wrote it, uh, a quote from Pastor Chuck Swindoll, and if you know anything about Chuck Swindoll, he is, uh, he is one of the most mild-mannered pastors and preachers and theologians that are out there. Great storyteller. He is, he is by no means a divisive man. He, he is, he is never, you're never able to pin him down as being negative. His heart is not for exclusion. But the quote I was going to give you is from Swindoll, and, and maybe it'll help you understand what where where that first approach might have been headed. Swindoll, when he preached this passage at one point, he said that, you know, this passage answers a, a contemporary question with a historical answer. In other words, this passage answers the contemporary question, what in the world is happening to the church today? And it's a good question, it's a question, you know, that deserves to be answered, and it's a question that... Church leaders certainly have as we look at the landscape of 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 what's called church these days. I mean, there's great frustration and there's there's a variety of opinions on what is church and what should church look like and how do you do church? And so it's a it's a valid question. It's a it's a question that needs to be answered. And he said this passage actually kind of answers that question, that frustrated question of what in the world is happening to the church these days? He says the answer is is only what was long ago predicted specifically here by the Apostle John. Swindoll says this, I've lived long enough to watch a frightening erosion occur. The church I entered back in the 50s and 60s is not the same as the church is today. The church is now market-driven. A strange mixture of corporate America, silly skits, showbiz techniques, (laughs) I just got to laugh, that have replaced the systematic teaching of the Word of God. There are exceptions, but that is the tragedy, Swindoll says, that those are just exceptions and not the rule. Instead of solid meat based on sound doctrine, the world of entertainment has invaded the ranks of the house of worship. A consumer mentality is now an acceptable substitute for theological thinking and biblical understanding. Biblically ignorant individuals gather to hear what they want to hear. In Paul's words, to have their ears tickled. It seems that some pastors today will stop at nothing to entertain their audiences. Notice I didn't say congregations, but audiences. End quote. So the, the, the sermon could go that way, and as I read the passage, you'll, you might see why the sermon could go that way. And, and, there, and it's a valid direction. I, I, would, I, would, I would take that direction on some occasions. I think there's something even better, though. I mean, who am I to argue with a Chuck Swindoll or or another great pastor preacher uh, that is far more gifted and talented than I am to take another direction? And so I'm not saying that's not a valid direction. It is a valid direction. Half of my sermon was written in that direction before I before I just sensed maybe we maybe we changed course. At least this morning, we could focus in that way, but. Um, I want to I want to help and, and let me say this, uh, that would be an easy sermon to preach. It's one of those sermons that's kind of just a little bit of a rant, you know. And as I said earlier, it's an approach that somewhat seems exclusive because it, it sounds a whole lot like we're better than them, or the way that we're going to do it is better than the way they're going to do it. And the way they're doing it, it's erred and flawed in these ways. And so it, you see how it's exclusive and it's a little bit negative. And sometimes it's difficult as a as a preacher or as a teacher of God's Word, to not, to not use what's wrong to help us understand what's right. Um, it would be easy to preach that message. It would be easy to talk about how in this passage we have to hold to the truth. We have to, as he's going to say, test the spirits, make sure that we understand who's who, and, and understand why those who are going astray are actually going astray. Listen, listen to the passage. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll see why it would be easy to go that direction. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, in which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we could draw some lines. We could talk about how, how we need to be doctrinally, theologically correct. How if we were to test the spirits, we could see how this, this one has gone astray. And how this one is right on track. And we could look for a way to make sure that we're staying in bounds. Make sure that we are we are preaching and teaching and living and being obedient according to the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Ryrie, a great Bible commentator, he said, he said, you know, love is like this river. It's not a song. Love, love is like a, a river. On either side of the river, you have you have like uh, these banks of discernment and wisdom. And sometimes that that river of love can overflow its banks. But understand that even love can do damage when it gets outside the confines. Of discernment and wisdom. Does that make sense? So th- there's some there's some danger if we get outside of our of our boundaries of wisdom and knowledge that come by number one God's word, this holy revelation. Let me give you let me give you the context here. Let's go back a little bit so that you understand, and maybe you'll start to see why we're going to go a little bit of a different direction. In chapter three, verse twenty three we get the transition from that chapter and the previous teaching into chapter 4. And it sounds like this. This is His commandment. Now notice that that word is singular and not plural. But we're going to get what seem to be two commandments that follow. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Now, the the, the point here is, is that that's not... Two separate commandments. It is one commandment because he's just gone to great lengths in the previous section to convince us that love has to come with our belief. Go back to chapter three, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So what is evidence of our new birth? What is evidence of our Christianity, evidence of our salvation? We've passed from death to life because of what love? Uh, they're, they are definitely connected. They cannot be separated. They cannot be divorced one from another. Look at verse uh, 18 and 19 of chapter 3. Verse 18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So let's just not talk a good game. Let's actually carry it out. Why? Same point. Love is a natural and necessary part of our new life in Christ. You, you can't have one without the other. If he is Lord then he will also work out his love through you. They cannot be separated. So if you say you're a Christian, you do not have love, then guess what? You're a liar and the truth is not in you. Verse 19, we will know by this. So what is going to be the evidence? We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And how is it? It's by the love that we show for one another. Look at now verse 24. Chapter three, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So how do we know that we have God in us? How do we know that we are walking in God? How do we know that there is that integral relationship? We know by this, that he abides in us. How? By the spirit whom he has given us. Paul says virtually the same thing. Romans eight sixteen. The spirit himself bears, what's the word? Witness or here in this translation, Testifies. That's a great translation as well because what that connotates is that, that, that aspect of evidence. So if you're in a court, if you're in a trial, a witness gives a testimony. They testify. And so they present evidence or proof that what they are testifying to is actually reliable. So what is the witness? What is the testimony? Well, it is a person. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us, gives us evidence that we are, in fact, children of God. So in now, chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to give us two commands. Look at it again. Beloved, and don't miss the fact that he's talking to the beloved. Do not believe every spirit. That's command number one. It's in the present imperative, so here's what it means. Stop believing in everything that comes your way. Stop it. Right here, right now. Evidently, there were some in the church who were being swayed by every wind of doctrine and teaching that came along. There were some of the beloved that were being tossed to and fro. And John says, hey, stop that. Anchor yourself. Find a foundation. Don't just listen to every spirit that comes along. All right, so keep going. That's command one. Command two, instead test the spirit. So stop doing something, but here here he says start doing something. Stop just listening to anybody who says anything they want to say, even if they sit in this position. But start start being wise, start being discerning, start testing, start evaluating that that evidence, that testimony that they bring with them. Because many, and here's just the fact of the matter he gives us at the end of verse 1, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They're there. Now, verse 2 is going to tell you how you do these things. How do you carry out these commands? How do you stop and how do you start? How do you figure out what spirit is what? Here's the how. By this, you know the spirit of God. Now, stop right there and I want you to underline, highlight, whatever you do, star it, check mark it. I want you to do it because he did not say this is how we know the spirit of the Antichrist. He's going to mention the opposite side of the spectrum spirit here in a minute. And this is where we start to differentiate between what approach and what angle we're going to take on this message. Are we here? Is John intending for us to go on this hunt for those who are of the Antichrist? Is that his point here? For us to... Go to this passage and look for ways to exclude, to say, that guy's not one of us. Let's let's not listen to him. It doesn't seem that way. Here's why. If that were the case, he would have initially and only said, by this we will know the spirit of the Antichrist. Instead, he says in verse 2, by this we will know the spirit of God. So, stop listening to every spirit. Be wise. Test the spirits what are we looking for? We're looking for the Spirit of God. That's, that's, that's not just a, a slight difference, mind you. I'm not just toying with the words and the phrases here. I think it's a valid approach to this passage to see that the heart of the Apostle John is not for us to go looking for the spirits of the Antichrist so that we could be a church that, that goes around trying to exclude folks that don't need to be here. The heart of John is to what's the first word of the chapter It's to the beloved. And to help us know and recognize the spirit of God among us. So you might say that the point of the verses is not merely to give a doctrinal test so that we can recognize false spirits. The point is to give a test for recognizing the true spirit. Keep in mind the reasons I gave you this last week. Keep in mind the reasons that John said he wrote this letter. What did he say? We wrote the letter, chapter 1, verse 3, that we might have fellowship. I wrote the letter, chapter 1, verse 4, that we might have joy. I wrote the letter, chapter 2, verse 1, that we might not sin. I wrote the letter, chapter 2, verse 26, that we might be victorious over the deceivers. We, we, we for the beloved that we might overcome, that we might have joy, that we might have fellowship, that we wouldn't sin, that we might be victorious over the deceivers. It's not it's not about finding them out. It's about it's about us. Finally, in chapter five, verse 13, we're going to see. And this is, I think, where he's pressing towards. We're going to see that his reason for writing in his own words is that we might know that we have eternal life. In other words, the point of John's writing this letter, is so that you and I walk away knowing confidently and humbly that, that the Spirit does live in us, that we are in Him and that He is in us. Remember now, those that He wrote to were kind of in a little bit of turmoil because they, they had other people around them that were starting to preach some other things. They weren't of the Holy Spirit, and, and that's that's valid, that's true, and, and there's, there's some evidence of why they'll know that. Paul, I always say Paul, Paul wrote most of it. John, here. Paul would agree. John's heart in this letter is that is that the, the beloved would be encouraged. That they would be grounded, that they would be anchored. That they wouldn't be tossed to and fro. That they wouldn't sit around saying, Man, I don't know, I don't know if I'm who I think I am. I don't know if the Spirit actually does me, live within me. So go back. Chapter 3, verse 23. What is his command? His command is twofold, but it's one and the same. Believe in love. All right? So just hang on. Check this out. Believe in love. Previous to him saying that, chapter 3, verse 23, he gave this whole section on how to unpack and why love is part of that evidentiary commandment. He spent all that time. Remember that? And then he moved in and he said, the commandment the one thing is believe in love and it looks like now in chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 he's going to unpack the belief half of it all right the doctrinal side of it the confession side of it what do i say i believe who do i listen to okay so you got love and then you got the combo there of the single commandment with the dual the dual sides to the same coin and then he's going to unpack now the belief part of it all right uh, incidentally look in your Bible at what comes after that section chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 what is he going to go into he's going to go into the God is love section okay so he comes back to love are, are you are you starting to kind of track with me here and understand the the design maybe of this argument for John the hinge verse however of these two sections the, the love 11 through 22 and the belief section chapter 4 verse 1 through 6 i think i think the hinge verse is in verse 24 where he says that the way we know is because of the one who lives in us the key is the holy spirit and is he present or is he not present now i hope i hope the overall idea makes a little more sense to you I hope now, when he says in chapter 4, verse 1, stop believing every spirit and test the spirits, you understand why he's saying that, because the key is whether or not the spirit's there or not. In verse 2, he says there's a way we'll know. The way we'll know is not primarily by figuring out who is a spirit of the Antichrist, but the way we'll know is primarily figuring out who is of the spirit of God. Um... Let me preach just a second before I continue teaching. Um, will we figure out by understanding who is of the Spirit of God, if we can, un- if we can untangle this, if we can, if we can approach this by looking at a po- in, a, in a positive light, who is of the Spirit of God, if we can untangle that, if we can figure out that Rubik's Cube here in this passage, will we then by default uh, be able to then indicate who is not of the Spirit, and, i.e., then who is of the Spirit of the Antichrist, as he will indicate in a minute? Yes course. That'll that'll happen. Let us be careful, however. Let's be careful not to be the body of Christ that is on the witch hunt for those who might inhabit the spirit of the Antichrist. John wants to encourage us with these words. The encouragement here is for the hearts of those who face their doubting spirits. The encouragement is to chapter four, verse one, the beloved chapter four, verse four, little children. And it is for chapter four, verse six. We who are from God. By the way, that's a phrase that will get used seven times in six verses. We who are of God or we who are from God. Seven times in six verses. Who do you think John is concerned about? All right, I feel better. Then it must be in there. So, verse 2. By this you will know the spirit of God. How will we know? John, here it is. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. So, how do we know? How do we recognize those who have the spirit of God? Well, they will confess that Jesus has come in the flesh and from God. Question. Aren't there many people, Pastor, aren't there many people, Apostle John, that say they believe, but in reality the Spirit is not in them? Absolutely. So we have a problem with the passage. There's got to be something more of course there are those who could say, who could confess, who could give testimony that they believe that Jesus in the flesh was God. And in no way does their life indicate that that is sincere or authentic. That's just the reality. He must then mean, when he says that Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He must then mean that it's, it's more than just saying the words, right? I mean, that makes sense to us. It's more than just making the confession and checking that box and saying those words out loud. It, it's got to be more than that. Certainly it's more than that. If it's not more than that, then we just say those words and our ticket is punched, right? Can't just be that. There must be, then, an inference carried here in John's words that there's an authenticity in that confession. There's a sincerity in that confession. There is more deep down in that confession than just what is on the words that come off the mouth. There must be something inside them that is motivating that confession. All right? Um, By the way, if you flip over to chapter 1, verse 9, it's the same word. Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the same word, confess. Does John mean to say that if we say out loud, we're sorry, we simply admit to our sins, yeah, that was wrong, with no heart behind it, with no sincerity or authenticity behind it, does he mean to say that, that God will faithfully forgive us cleanse us from all that unrighteousness of course not that would be ludicrous it's got to be more than just words there has to be some authenticity there so it's the same it's the same idea it's the same it's the same concept certainly there has to be something that lies beneath just those mere words it's not just a confession so when john says in 42 that the evidence of divine Spiritual reality is the confession that Jesus has come in the flesh. He probably does not mean that the mere words or thoughts are sufficient evidence. Instead, John probably means that the sincere, genuine confession of Christ is evidence of the Spirit's work. What are we looking for? We're looking for the Holy Spirit that resides within. That thing that might cause them to make that confession. If there is a disposition of heart corresponding to the tremendous truth that the Son of God has come in the flesh, then the confession is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, mere doctrinal words, no matter how true, don't prove anything about the spirit of the person behind them, unless the words come with reverence and heartfelt conviction and submission to Christ. So there's got to be something that lies beneath. Uh, You see this again in verse 6. Skip down to verse 6. We are from God. Who? He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Same same kind of question we have to ask. Aren't there many people who listen to truth but don't actually house the spirit after hearing that truth? Absolutely. How many people have heard Billy Graham give very clear truth and testimony to the gospel, but they've never They've never owned it in their heart. They've they've heard the truth, but you could argue that they've not listened to the truth. They've not embraced it. They've not owned it. It's not made any difference from the inside out. So are, what are we looking for here? Are we looking for just a doctrinal box to check so we can see who's who in the zoo? Like, who's in and who's out? Well, do you believe that Jesus came in the flesh? Yes. Okay, you're good. That's ridiculous. Because we know there are plenty of people who will say that. Are you willing to listen to the teaching of the apostles? Sure. Today? So I don't particularly disagree with what they say? Yeah. Certainly, he's got to have an inference of some authenticity, some sincerity here, that not only is what happens on the ear or on the tongue, but what happens, therefore, on, on a heart level. What's going on inside? So the testimony of the Spirit that assures us that we are children of God is the work of the Spirit to make us listen to the gospel submissively and confess the Christ of the gospel heartily. So here's the point of the passage. It's not a mere test of doctrine that allows us to eliminate false teachers. If so, again, it would have started, this is how we know the spirit of the Antichrist, so we can eliminate those folks. But instead, but this is how we know the spirit of God. This is to the beloved. This is to the little children. This is to we who are from God. Here's a greater point. Here's, a, I think, a greater approach. Only the Spirit can bring someone to authentic confession and genuine obedience that comes by sincere, receptive hearing. Hearing. Verse 4 in chapter 4 is the key verse. Now hang on. I think this will help pull things together for you. Verse 4 says this. It's more than just the inference that we heard in chapter 4 verse 2 and chapter 4 verse 6. I think in verse 4 it comes to the surface. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. John's goal here is encouragement and humility. The great lesson that lies beneath the surface in this text is that none of us will listen to the message of Christ unless the mighty Holy Spirit overcomes our resistance and gives us ears to hear. Listen to how John Piper says it. None of us will confess from the heart that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh unless the mighty Holy Spirit humbles us to accept The authority of Jesus implied in that confession. John's great assumption lying beneath these verses is that the hearing of the gospel with openness and confessing Christ with loyalty is the work and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If this listening and this confessing could be explained in any other way, they would not be sure signs of the Spirit's presence and power in us. But they are a sign of His power. For John knows that no one hears and no one confesses apart from the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. So verse four. Little children, beloved children, John says, you have. No, no doubt, you have overcome. Question. How have they overcome? How have they overcome? Was it was it of them? Was it in them to overcome? That's not what he points out. He points to nothing In them, that is of them. In fact, he points at something that's in them that is not of them. And what is it? It's not a what. It is a who. The one who is in you. Who is the one who is in you, beloved little children? It is, guess who? The Holy Spirit. Who did we say the key was, the hinge to this this whole argument? Chapter 3, verse 24. How do we know? The Spirit of Him is in us. That's how we know. Who are we looking for? We're looking for the spirit of God. How, how have they overcome? How have we overcome? What is the humble encouragement here in the apostles? In the apostles' estimation, it is the spirit. He is the one who has overcome. Now check this out. What has he overcome or who has he overcome? He who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than what? He who is in the world. Who is the he that is in the world? It is our adversary, Satan. Who is the one that lays behind? Who is who is the one that lays behind the spirit of the antichrist? You've got you've got this search for those who are of the spirit because by finding those who are of the Spirit, we know that they're of God. Those who are of the Antichrist, they are of someone else. Who are they? The he who is in the world. And John says, listen, we're, we're on a hunt here, not to separate the bad guys. We're on a hunt here, little children, to find for our own encouragement and for our own humility, who is it that resides in us that makes all the difference? Who is it that lives in us? What is it that is in us that helps us to overcome all that is in the world? Notice that he didn't say all the stuff that's in the world, all the issues, all the problems, all the circumstances, all all the troubles that we'll have in the world. No, he goes right to the heart of the matter and he says, he who is in you is able to overcome he who is in the world. He goes to the one who is behind all of the mess that is in the world. So what is our walk away lesson? Here it is. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than the satanic forces of deception and blindness. And every believer owes his orthodoxy to the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. If we stand with Christ, listening receptively, confessing loyally, it is because the Holy Spirit is greater than all other forces in the world and has made us to conquer the blindness and hardness of our own hearts and the deception of the enemy. I've said it in different ways, trying to help us understand John's heart through the letter. Let me say it yet another. John is not looking through this letter to give us a list of things to do, to measure up to. Instead, John... John takes us to the facts of the matter. What are we supposed to be? What do we look like? What is the testimony? What is the evidence? Well... Today he says, The one who testifies on your behalf, it is none other than the, the Spirit of the living God, who is in you. How do you know? How do you know that you are in him and he is in you? Chapter 3, verse 24. Because his spirit is in you. His spirit is in you. So so stop listening to every spirit because he's not in everyone. Test the spirits, be smart, be wise because many many false teachers are already in the world little children beloved so so how do we how do we know how do we know what spirit resides in us how do we know what spirit resides in those around us certainly doctrinally we we have some basics i mean if jesus is not lord if he's not god in the flesh well that's a deal breaker <laughs> that's obvious and by the way there are more things that we could check off that list. So so if that's not something we can confess, if that's not something you agree to, that's obvious, but there's more. I mean, there's a reason you agree to that. There's a reason that comes that comes to your mouth. There's a reason that you testify to that truth. There's a reason inside. There's a reason you you listen the way you do to God's commands. There's a reason that you don't just listen and hear and, and continue on, but that you listen and you you change you obey you you walk a different direction there's a reason something inside of you there's a there's a there's a why that we who are of the spirit, we who are from God, we who are from God seven times in six verses there's a reason we little children beloved there's a reason we we hear things from god's word the way we do because there's one in us that makes all the difference. We have his spirit in us. And so it's encouraging, but at the same time humbling, because that has nothing to do with me, my abilities, my smartness. It's not even a word, Jackson, don't use it. I didn't I didn't I didn't come to my senses and decide, you know what? I think Jesus, he's the best answer. By the sovereignty of God, He has planted His Holy Spirit in those who are called according to His good will and pleasure. And because of that Spirit residing in us, He, that Spirit, testifies to the Father that we are His. And by that Spirit, you and I as we now face this world and all that comes at us through these false teachers and crazy ideas and, and whatever goes on in the world and how they want to do church and how they want to be Christians and how they want to live out their Christian, etc. How do we how do we live through that? Well, we we live in a in a solid, anchored way because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we can rest on that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, that it is not an idle word, as Moses said, it is our very life. Thank you that you have given us your spirit, not only your son, you have given us your spirit to reside in us, so that until that day we are physically at your right hand, we know that via the spirit we are as good as on your lap, Father we are accepted we are yours we take great comfort not only that the spirit is in us but that he has overcome the one who is in the world not not just the stuff in this world he has overcome not not just the the troubles of this world he has overcome not just not just death but he has overcome the one who is behind all that mess He has overcome the one who throws the lies and deception at us. He's overcome the one who is a murderer from the very beginning. So take heart, our souls. Take heart, our spirits. Because He is greater. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. For being more perfect than we could ever imagine. For covering all the bases in ways that we've still yet to even understand. May we leave here, Lord, today encouraged and humbled by what You've done in us. And we pray that You would continue to receive glory in all that You do through us. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. our